This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning and welcome to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanesin. Today on Ring It and Sense, we're going to explore how to analyze and choose good banking stocks here in Malaysia. And to help me with this, I'm speaking with Liu Wai Hong, banking analyst with RHB Research. Uh, Wai Hong, thank you for joining me today. Morning, Roshan. Pleasure to be here. Now, Wai Hong, maybe you could give us a bit of context before we dive into the metrics and the financials that we should be looking at. How big is the banking sector on the Malaysian stock market? Sure. Um, there are about 11 banks that are listed in Bursa right now. And the combined market cap of these banks is around 300 billion ringgit. Um, this is about 18% of the overall total market cap in Bursa. But the percentage will be much higher at around 30% if we just focus on the FBM KLCI. Right. And of course, of the, the FBM KLCI is made of 30 component stocks, right? Uh, of those yep, 30, right. uh, how many of them are banks, uh, Wai Hong? Um, there are currently, if I'm not mistaken, about five banks that are included in uh, CI. Um, so it's Maybank, Public, uh, CIMB, Hong Leong, and RHB. So these five uh, has about uh, have about 30% of market cap of the CI. Who are the key banks? Are they the are they just simply the comp- the ones on the component index? And do these banks have different specialties, right? Does Maybank differ from uh, RHB in terms of its focuses, uh, those kind of things? Sure. Um, by asset size, the three biggest players here in Malaysia are Maybank, CIMB, and Public Bank. Now, all these uh, three banks are what, what we call universal banks, uh, where they offer almost all kinds of services, you know, ranging from retail, SME, uh, corporate, uh, to investment banking. However, there are some nuances uh, between them. For example, while Maybank and CIMB are quite diverse and have larger regional footprint, Public Bank uh, is known for having a relatively higher portion in uh, of their loans in the retail and SME lending, but relatively little in the corporate lending. Right. And um, moving on, could you explain to us how banks make their money? Sure. Interesting question, uh, uh, Roshan. Um, generally speaking, banks generate revenue through two major streams, uh, which we call first net interest income and secondly, uh, non-interest income. Um, for net interest income, simply put, it's just the difference between the interest income that banks receive from their borrowers and the interest expense they pay to depositors like most of us. Um, essentially, you know, banks are in the business where they borrow money from depositors while paying us uh, some interest, which is pretty low right now, and in turn lend this money to the borrowers and charge them at a higher interest rate, right? So the difference between that interest is what banks pocket and what we call net interest income. The other part of the revenue stream is non-interest income. It basically consists of a wide range of items that are not interest related. The biggest component here is usually the fee income. You could think of the fee that you pay for processing transactions, unit trust, brokerage, etc. Other components include uh, trading income from equity and bond and uh, other mark-to-market gains and etc. You know. Are there Malaysian banks that maybe rely more on interest income or and banks that rely more on non-interest income? Uh, generally speaking, the bulk of the income generator, it's still net interest income. That's like the bread and butter for most of the banks there. Um, the differences or nuances would come 
when it uh, when we look into non-interest income, right? So for example, public bank, uh, we know that uh, their asset management unit, which is public mutual, is very huge here. So most of their non-interest income would be from this uh, unit trust. And for someone like Maybank, they have very huge uh, insurance, which is Attica. So uh, a sizable portion of the non-interest income for Maybank is for is from this uh, insurance business. So there are some nuances between banks when it comes to non-interest income, not so much on net interest income. So just following up on that then, uh, Wai Hong, what are the key factors that determine a bank's profitability? One, of course, is the, uh, the benchmark interest rate. What else uh, is important there? Yeah, now uh, let me take a step back and look at that at the highest level, right? So a profitability of a bank is really not so different from a, companies in other sectors. It's really all about revenue minus cost. And for for banks, the two biggest revenue components are, like I mentioned, net interest income and non-interest income. Um, For cost, there are also two big components here, uh, which are operating expenses. You can think of the staff cost, the rental. And the other component is provision expenses, uh, which is for bad loans, right? Or more commonly known as credit cost. So you can probably tell that by now, three of these four major revenue slash cost components are directly affected by macroeconomic conditions, uh, perhaps with the exception of operating expenses. Now, this makes uh, banks' profitability highly dependent on the overall economic performance. The current situation is a very good example to illustrate this point. Uh, Banks' profitability has been severely impacted by COVID and lockdown since 2020. Now, firstly, uh, the net interest income was affected as Bank Nagara slashed the benchmark rate by a total of 125 uh, basis points and couple that with a lackluster loan growth. So you have lower interest rate and very muted loan growth. And secondly, fee income was also dragged by the overall softer economic activities. You know, people spend less, so you get less fee income from credit card whatnot. Um, but the greatest impact here is the loan loss provision, right? So banks actually more than doubled the provision last year uh, in anticipation of the higher default. Uh, all this combined actually resulted in a 30% year-on-year decline in the sector profitability. So to summarize all this, uh, macroeconomy, interest rates and default risk are the three biggest profitability drivers for the banks. Right. Um, Wayong, could you dive into a loan loss provisions a little bit more? What are these, right? And uh, why do they impact the bank's financials so much? Sure. Um, without going into too technical, uh, loan loss provisions, it's just that uh, banks are setting aside a certain provisions in anticipation, either it's in anticipation of uh, some of their borrowers uh, will, will default or actually defaulted. So these are the so-called bad debt expenses that banks uh, book uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, in times like COVID and uh, or, or even normal times, right? Just that during COVID, it spiked uh, by a lot. So that is what normally uh, make up for, for this uh, loan loss provision. Right. So essentially, the bank is putting money aside, expecting uh, a certain level of defaults or credit uh, credit issues to arise. And it's, so with this money, they can, it's, a, it's essentially an emergency buffer fund in a personal finance context. Is that about right? Uh, yeah, you could think of it. So either they're expecting or, or some of the borrowers really default and uh, they have to make this provision. Now, the other one I want to talk a little bit more about is, of course, interest rates, right? They play such an important role when it comes to a bank's income. Could you explain to us the importance of interest rates and how they impact a bank's earnings specifically? 
Sure. Uh, the impact can be driven, uh, can be broken down into direct impact and indirect impact. So direct impact, like you rightly pointed out, it's on the interest income. So uh, when Bank Nagara uh, cut the benchmark rate, which is the OPR, uh, banks have to follow and lower the interest rate that they charge on the borrowers. So there will be uh, what we call a margin squeeze there, where banks essentially make less uh, interest income from their borrowers because of this lower interest rate. The indirect impact is, uh, it would be a potentially higher loan loss provision. You see, Bank Nagara normally cuts interest rate when they think the country's economy is facing some challenges. So a more challenging economic condition uh, often suggests that a weaker repayment capabilities by the borrowers, uh, hence the higher default risk. So the indirect impact from lower uh, interest rate would be a potentially higher uh, default risk, hence uh, loan loss provisions. Right. And um, overall, then, what are the important factors or financial metrics that investors should pay attention to when looking at different bank stocks? Um, uh, because, uh, you know, normally we always hear the word price to, price to earnings ratio. Um, is that important when it comes to banks? And what else should we be watching? All right. Uh, okay. So for banks, uh, let's talk about financial metrics first, and then we can talk about valuation metrics. So for financial metrics, there are really a ton of them. Um, but there is this one metric that uh, almost everyone looks at it, you know, the investors, the analysts, even the management, the bank's management, they pay very close attention to it. And it's the return on equity, uh, which is ROE. So ROE is basically a measure of how much is the investor getting for every dollar he or she invests uh, in the banks. It's also arguably the most important metric that we use to uh, assess a bank's performance. Um, you know, you see the number itself uh, might not tell you a lot, right? So it's just a percentage. Uh, but if you do a little bit of digging, uh, it will tell you uh, how profitable the business is and how efficient a bank's capital management is as well. Uh, on top of this, uh, like you rightly pointed out, ROE also directly affects bank's valuation. Um, so banks with higher ROE usually command a higher valuation multiple. And... You know, talking about now, the sector ROE has been around 8 to 9% in uh, recent years. And for valuation-wise, uh, we normally use price to book uh, as the valuation uh, metric as opposed to price to earnings. Earnings can be very volatile for uh, the banking sector uh, simply because of the economic cycle. Like last year, you know, uh, they, they took a really big hit from the provisions, right? So if you use price to earnings, that could be uh, a, a little bit of complication there because that earnings, uh, that price to earnings just fluctuates too much. So we use uh, price to book, which is a more steady uh, type of uh, metrics. And uh, really, because banks' assets and liability are mostly at quoted at fair value. So there is not much uh, difference when it comes to the historical value. So price to book is a better option uh, that most investors and analysts use in valuing a bank. So can you tell us a little bit more about price to book then? What does it tell us and what are the kind of readings uh, that we should be uh, watching for? Sure. Um, so normally for us, uh, there is a certain formula where we can calculate you know, the so-called fair uh, price to book, it's called justified price to book ratio. You can Google that, but it simply means that how it ties back to the ROE is that um, for a bank with a higher ROE, so normally they would trade at a uh, higher price to book valuation. 
uh, all else equal. Uh, case in point here is public bank. So their ROE is like sector leading, you know, 12, 13%. Hence the valuation uh, price to book is uh, way above one, quoting at uh, 1.2 and 1.3 times price to book. So ROE directly correlates uh, with the price to book valuation. Higher ROE normally commands higher price to book. Now, Raihong, besides the, the ROE and the price to book, are there any other metrics to be watching here or maybe non-financial or non-valuation metrics to watch? Yeah, uh, I think three more financial metrics that we not normally look at. First is the cost to income ratio. Second is the credit cost. And finally is the uh, gross impact loan ratio. So cost to income ratio is just a measure of how efficient uh, a bank is uh, in running its business. Uh, the lower, the better uh, for this uh, ratio. It simply means that uh, for every dollar you bring in as revenue, you pay less uh, to uh, to your staff, to your landlord, etc. So that's number one. Um, credit cost is just a measure of how much provision that uh, the bank set aside in a given period, uh, normally uh, a year. So this should be read uh, together with the gross impact uh, loan ratio because uh, these two ratios or uh, these two metrics basically tell you how healthy a bank's uh, portfolio is right now and uh, what they're expecting this health of their loan book to be uh, in the you know next 12 months or so. So these three are the financial metrics. Uh, the non-financial metrics, uh, it's less, but there's one thing that's really gaining a lot of attention lately is the ESG side of things. So investors now increasingly pay more attention to how banks uh, perform in terms of their environmental social and governance uh, side of things. So this is not exactly uh, financial, but it's definitely gaining a lot of attention lately. One of the key sources of information for banking stocks or any stock for the matter is the annual or quarterly report, right? So let's say I open up one of these reports, either the annual or quarterly one. What should we generally be looking for in these, uh, in these sometimes very long documents? Yep, you're right. It can go you know, beyond 100 pages. <laughs> um, yeah. Really, just things that uh, we talked about just now, you know, really no uh, secrets here. So it's really just the ROE, uh, cost to income ratio, credit costs, and gross impact loans. These, uh, these are the main metrics that really a lot of people pay a lot of attention to. Um, you may need to do some math to derive some of the metrics though. Um, but other things we normally would uh, look out for would be the loan and deposit growth, uh, the net interest margin, and capital ratio like uh, CT1, ratio but the most important one are the four metrics that i mentioned just now now when we take a look at banking stocks um we often want to pay attention to that yield right the dividend because that, that's quite an attractive part of uh, of banking stocks here in malaysia in particular or even across the world but that's it are banks simply for the yield you can get or is there a case for long-term capital appreciation oh that's a very good question Roshan. um i guess my answer to this is that uh Dividend and capital appreciation are not mutually exclusive, although you're right that dividend often plays a bigger part in the investment thesis. Um, why is because you know banking sector is considered to be a rather mature industry and doesn't require you know, huge capital in investment for growth, right? So that means that uh, they will have better dividend capacity as long as they are able to satisfy the capital requirements, you know, by bank and government or by themselves. So most banks have pretty consistent uh, dividend payout, and the most generous in dividend is definitely. May Bank. So that's why banks are often perceived as dividend stock. But there are certainly uh, opportunities for capital appreciation uh, as well. Uh, if you look at, uh, let's say, 
banks like CIMB it has done quite well when it comes to share price appreciation in the past 12 months. Um, as a matter of fact, the whole banking sector uh, got some re-rating uh, because of the uh, vaccine news, right? So uh, we saw you know, stock that just go up 10, 15, 20%. So yeah, there are opportunities for capital appreciation as well. But well, that's over the last 12 months. On a longer term basis, if we look at maybe a 5, 10 year horizon, should the mindset be buy this for yield or buy banks for capital appreciation? Well, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Okay, um, so if you're holding it for a long-term perspective, then yield perhaps is the uh, better angle here. Because banking stocks are inherently cyclical, so it goes up and down following the economic cycle, more or less. Um, so uh, unless you are actively looking at the market, you want to time the market, um, but if you're holding it for a long-term, then yield is perhaps the more appropriate angle here. But the other thing when we look at dividend yield, right, the, the higher the dividend yield doesn't always mean it's the best company to be buying, right? Because it could be because the price, the stock price is falling. So when it comes to Malaysian banks and uh, the kind of dividends that we get, is there a concern to be had over maybe falling into a dividend value trap, uh, Waihong? Oh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think this question can be broken down into two parts, right? First, the dividend part and then the share price part. Uh, dividend part, like I mentioned just now, uh, most banks pay rather consistent uh, and steady dividend over time. So uh, really not much concern here. Of course, there are exceptions like, you know, like, like last year, I think a lot of the banks actually cut their payout ratio um, because of the pandemic. But normal times, uh, dividend shouldn't be an issue. Share price-wise, um, I... I personally don't think uh, there is any uh, big issues here, uh, at least for the bigger the bigger ones like you know Maybank, Xiaomi, Public Hong Leong. Uh, share price have actually uh, held up pretty well. Sure, it follows certain cycle, just like the economy, but uh, is it on a downward you know trend that got derating? Um, I don't think so. So it's not really a concern uh, when it comes to you know dividend trap. All right. So with all that in mind then, uh, well, in summary, what are the key elements that make a good banking stock? <laughs> uh, wow, wow. This is a very broad question. So um, <laughs> ROE is definitely the, only, the, the, the main thing that we look at. You know, you just, sorry to sound like a broken record, but ROE is really the metrics that a lot of people look at. Because once you further break this down, it tells you a lot more than just uh, a simple percentage suggests. So ROE is definitely one. Second is the dividend uh, payout and the history. So uh, you, as someone who wants to buy a bank in the longer term, you definitely uh, want to uh, make sure that these banks you know, offer you good and uh, high visibility when it comes to dividend. Um, third thing I would uh, uh, I'll look at is that um, it's the governance part, right? Uh, it has been quite an issue uh, lately because of a few high-profile uh, companies there. Um, but for generally for banks, the governance uh, is pretty good. Um, they are very, very uh, much regulated uh, by the Act, you know, Banking Act and by Bank Negara. So governance part, uh, it, it's really... Uh, not an issue. So these three things are, are things that I would look at, ROE, dividend, and the non-financial part would be the governance part. Right. So, and would those, would, would ROE, dividend yield, and maybe even price to book be the key, I guess, key factors when it comes to assessing whether a banking stock is cheap, expensive, or fairly valued? Yeah, you're right, definitely. So uh, it's normally ROE and price to book. Um, 
Okay, so how it works is that when it comes to uh, valuing banking stock, we always look at the ROE, the return on equity, and then we compare it with the cost of equity. So cost of equity is basically the required return that an investor wants uh, if he or she invests in the bank, right? So um, for bank uh, who can consistently generate ROE that's higher than the cost of equity, they should uh, trade at a higher price to both. Above one time, uh, than those who actually can generate, uh, or, or those who fail to generate uh, ROE that's higher than cost of equity. So it's ROE versus cost of equity that uh, basically determines what kind of price to book that uh, a bank should trade at. Right, and could you tell us a little bit more about cost of equity? How is that number found? Is that is that publicly available? It's not publicly available. Uh, it, it follows the you know capital asset pricing model, uh, CAPM uh, formula. So uh, each uh, analyst or each user would have a slightly different uh, number for that uh, cost to equity, but it wouldn't uh, deviate that much, right? Uh, it's in the range of let's say you know seven to eight uh, percent, sometimes even higher, depending on the, the market cycle. But it's around there. Right. And uh, for the, with the last few minutes we have, uh, I want to take a look at maybe some of the upside and downside risks going forward. So when you look at the sector, broadly speaking, what are the key elements that uh, we should keep in mind and take into consideration to determine if the banking sector will outperform? Okay. Um, outperformance uh, by this banking sector is actually depending on two factors, the performance on the banking sector itself and the performance of the uh, broader market. So let's, you know, in this case, let's call it uh, PMKLCI. Um, given the banking sector's cyclical nature, um, the sector generally outperforms somewhere between the trough of a down cycle, means the bottom of a down cycle, uh, and the beginning of a next up cycle. Um, for instance, you know, we saw the sector uh, greatly underperform the KLCI since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, really, really bad underperformance. Now, until the announcement of the first vaccine by Pfizer, at that point, since that point, uh, we saw a great re-rating in banking sector's valuation. And we saw a great comeback uh, when it comes to, you know, share prices. So uh, that's because investors uh, started to price in uh, the recovery prospect. So that tells you that, you know, from the trough of the uh, down cycle to the beginning or even to the mid of the up cycle is where uh, a cyclical sector like banks generally outperform uh, the broader market. Very, very interesting there, Wai Hong. Uh, but on the flip side then, what are the downside risks to be paying attention to? Yeah, um, downside risk is definitely when we are headed, headed towards a down cycle. Really, um, normal times when things are stable, uh, investors wouldn't care too much. But when things get a little bit soft, suddenly the issue of asset quality becomes the uh, single concern that dominates investors' mind or everyone's mind. So when investors or when analysts have doubt over the bank's asset quality, the default risk basically, is it higher right now? If it is, then you you will normally see uh, bank uh, investors shy away from owning banking stocks. Right. And now on this note then, you know, with the pandemic, we're seeing more concerns over bankruptcies and economic scarring. How severe are these concerns with regards to a bank's earnings and profitability? Yeah, yeah, we get asked a lot, uh, and this issue has been on top of everyone's mind for more than a year now. Um, honestly speaking, uh, it's almost inevitable that the pandemic and lockdown 
uh, will eventually result in higher defaults uh, among the individuals and uh, businesses. But how severe will this you know, default risk be uh, really depends on two things here. Uh, the first thing is the situation of this COVID slash lockdown. And the second one is the various repayment uh, program or relief assistance by Bank Megara. Uh, one thing we are certain is that the default risk uh, would have been much, much higher had Bank Megara not rolled out uh, any relief program, you know, including that repayment reduction and moratorium. But on the, on the other hand, precisely because of these measures, uh, it makes any assessment of asset quality becomes a very challenging task, right? So borrowers who would normally be classified as default in normal times are not uh, classified as default at the moment, given that uh, relief program. So we, we we are unlikely to see any you know real take up in this uh, default borrowers or default rate, perhaps until the end of 2021 uh, to the beginning of 2022. So. Uh, right now, really uh, nothing much uh, we can see from the asset quality side. Uh, but you see, uh, banks are not uh, just sitting around while waiting for things to turn bad, right? As a matter of fact, uh, they have been, again, setting aside billions of provisions uh, in anticipation of this uh, eventual rise in default rates. Um, what they have done is that they essentially have been bringing forward the provisions before the loans uh, turn bad. Uh, but the question here is uh, whether the amount is sufficient or not really uh, greatly depends on this uh, lockdown restriction and vaccination uh, progress. When we take a look at those those default risks and credit risks and all of that, well, when do bankruptcies and loan defaults become a concern for banks? Because, you know, they have put provisions aside and all of that. But in your view here, when does this all become a, a material concern for banks? So whether it's material or not, it, it really depends on the uh, amount of exposure uh, to 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 that uh, de, you know default uh, parties or default borrowers, so that amount uh, really plays the biggest role when it comes to whether such such a concern is uh, as a big one or a small one. But uh, where does this you know amount come from? It normally comes in three forms. First is borrower specific risk, and the second one is the sector specific, and finally is the overall. Uh, market risk. So overall market risk is really, it's, it's pretty much uh, what's happening right now, right? You have COVID, you have lockdown. So the overall economy is under threat. Hence, you have that uh, perhaps, you know, sector-wise or broader market-wise default risk. Uh, for borrower-specific risk, uh, it normally happens when some of the borrowers go into financial trouble. I think if you read from the news that uh, Alliance Bank was having a bit of trouble with one of their borrowers, uh, namely London Biscuit. Um, so, Therefore, you can see that normally default by some big corporates are the main issue here uh, because of the amount, right? Um, for sector-specific one, you can think of when oil price collapsed back in 2014, uh, 2015. Now, all of a sudden, back then, people got really concerned with banks that had high exposure to the oil and gas sector. So uh, these three are the main three uh, sources, you know, borrower-specific, sector-specific, and overall market uh, risk, uh, where default, uh, you know, concern for default generally come from. And to wrap up this entire conversation, Wai Hong, when, we, when it comes to the Malaysian banking sector or Malaysian banking stocks, what are the key macroeconomic or government policies to be watching out for? Sure. Um, 
I guess uh, at this point, you probably have a very good idea that, you know, banks are really a macro-driven sector, right? So, uh, you know, uh, having said that, we obviously monitor most of the key macro indicators, uh, GDP, inflation, unemployment rate, uh, etc. But for that sector-specific, uh, we actually track the monthly banking statistics by uh, Bank Nagara, uh, which includes uh, data on loan growth, loan demand, asset quality, and more. Uh, and of course, uh, we watch very, very closely at the uh, at any announcement by Bank Nagara, uh, obviously including the MPC meeting statements that basically decide the uh, OPR movement. Yeah, so these normally are the things that we uh, look out. Wai Hong, on that note, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. A pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Prashant. I was speaking with Liu Wai Hong, banking analyst with RHB Research, and you've been listening to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanesan for BFM 89.9. Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.